I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the new season of the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Books podcast. Um, and I'm delighted to be joined for our very first episode of the year by Nargis Bojagli of SAIS at Johns Hopkins University. We'll be talking about her, her new book, Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic, which was recently published by Stanford University Press. Um, Nargis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we start, just tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, what was the main purpose of the book and what were you trying to accomplish when you wrote it? Yeah, so um, the book is uh, an anthropological and ethnographic look at the at Iran's Revolutionary Guard and paramilitary forces that it controls in Iran, and specifically their media producers uh, within these groups. And I had two main purposes for, with the research project in general. One is that even though there's been a plethora of wonderful scholarship on media production in Iran, one of the big gaps remains, remains the media produced by the state, um, and especially the military forces which uh, invest the most amount of money in media production in the country um, so I wanted to look at that and then two um, is that there we have a lot of great scholarship on in Iran in, in post-revolutionary Iranian studies on um, areas of resistance to the state as sort of is the case to with most studies of post-revolutionary societies period, whether it looks at Cuba, the Soviet Union, China, and so forth. Um, so my, my uh, goal with this project was to, uh, was to sort of flip the lens and do an ethnographic project on uh, uh, lo locations of power instead of looking at resistance movements, because we know uh, quite well sort of uh, how different resistance movements in Iran have formed in the post-revolutionary period, but we don't really know beyond a, a sort of abstract sense of what and who the supporters of the Islamic Republic are. And it's fascinating because you, you don't, most people I think don't really have a sense of, of how much of this uh, regime produced uh, media there actually is. Tell us a little bit about it, like the scope of it and uh, the movies, the TV shows. What are they producing? Yeah, so, you know, um, uh, as scholars like Hamid Nafisi have been working on for a long time, there's the Islamic Republic has had a very robust um, uh, media production since the 1979 revolution. Um, now, within the regime itself, um, much of that has tended up until fairly recently to sort of manifest itself in state television and to to be things like documentary films, uh, narrative fiction films, um, uh, and some television serials and things like that. More recently, however, they've sort of uh, become um, more sophisticated at how they're doing their media production. So they've created a lot of internet television channels, they're doing a lot of music videos now, and they're also sort of um, have expanded in the past a little bit over a decade to be doing a lot more in non-Persian language media. So they're producing a lot in Arabic, of course. For a while, when Iran's relationship with Venezuela was closer during the Hugo Chavez and Ahmadinejad era, they were also they also had a Spanish language television site. Um, so it's very sort of wide and expansive. Um, and for the purposes of the project, I was focusing much more on just their production, domestic production within Iran for domestic audiences, because really my question was how are they trying to communicate the revolution to this younger generation domestically rather than looking mm -hmm. at their international output and it, it, it's fascinating you have all these anecdotes in there about how they're trying to mask the origin of it so that the youth won't just dismiss it out of hand 
um, which suggests that they're actually aware of some of the problems with official media. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was sort of most surprised by when I was doing my research was how um, robust their debates were among themselves about the shortcomings of their media production. Mm -hmm. And so um, they it's not like they are sitting around trying to fool themselves about how great their outreach is to, to young people and to the population as a whole. They very well know and recognize their shortcomings. They know that people tend to dismiss what's on state television as propaganda. Uh, and so in the, I did my research uh, mostly in the post, like right as the, the summer of 2009 and the Green Movement was starting is when I was starting my research. And so I was really looking at a time period and I was around these folks at a time period where they were very cognizant of the shortcomings that they, of what they were producing. So what they were trying to do is, is try to figure out how to produce uh, media that would get people to want to keep the system alive without necessarily thinking that they're watching propaganda. And you know, it was interesting uh, in uh, one of the uh, one of the meetings that that you document. Um, I, I, it, was, it was fascinating to me the way there was this resentment among the besieged members themselves, saying that the entire media is controlled by you guys. Why can't you just put us as the heroes of the movie just once? Yeah, I, in, in that chapter that you're describing, it was this meeting between um, these very, very conservative um, media, uh, sort of uh, newspaper and reporters, uh, some of who belonged to the Basige and, um, and many of whom had sort of come out of that circle, and they were in a discussion with an independent filmmaker. And so um, th that, to me, sort of captured this larger reality that I saw everywhere I was going when I was doing this research, was that even though they hold formal power in Iran, what they lack is social and cultural capital. Mm -hmm. And that is something that they think and they know that the uh, intelligentsia holds in Iran, the art artists, the independent artist class holds in Iran. And so there is this very large divide between them. And um, this is one of the things in which, I mean, the Basijis, for example, really do think that their story is not depicted in the quote-unquote right way in media, even though they, they hold so much levers of power within the state. And that, and that actually was something very interesting. You mentioned this right at the beginning, and I think it, I think it's a point that's very well made in the book that um, we as scholars and the media in general, I mean, we are drawn to resistance and to the independent youth and all of that. And yet it's the case in almost every country that I've studied and certainly in Iran that there actually are strong constituencies uh, that are actually loyal to the regime, believe the narratives. And it seems like as political scientists or as analysts, we're constantly surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, within the discipline that I come from, within anthropology, there's this big discussion and debate about how we, because of our methodology of doing long-term participant observation, we tend to do it with groups that we are personally sympathetic towards, right? Because you, in order to sort of be able to live amongst or do work amongst a group of people for a long period of time, it's just tends to be easier to do it among people that you sort of see eye to eye with about the world or that you at least sympathize with. So to do the research with a group of people that you don't agree with, I think, um, is something that takes some time to build those relationships first and foremost, because it's not like, you know, they also understand that you're not coming in it seeing eye to eye with them. Um, but what I think, for me at least, what this project revealed is that um, 
Yes, there are very real and robust movements against the Islamic Republic and for reform and change within Iran. However, um, there are I don't there are large numbers within the population who also do support the system, and it's not because they love the system in and of itself per se. But one of the things I try to get in in the book is that. There, there were very large portions of the population in the pre-revolutionary period that felt tremendously marginalized by the Shah's government. And that the revolution and the aftermath of the revolution gave these folks a sense of purpose and a place in society. Um, so even when today they realize that there are a lot of things that they themselves disagree with, with the system as a whole, for them, the discussions that I at least were heard of quite a bit was, well, what's the alternative? And if the alternative is a government of folks who despise us, then they'll push us back to the margins of society again. And I think, I mean, for me as an academic, these questions were interesting to me, but also as some as, as a person who is invested in a um, a just politics for Iran in the future. Um, for me, I think it's important to also, un it's, it's important to understand all of these different sides in, in being able to sort of think about what a political future in Iran might look like, mm -hmm. um, you know, beyond the Islamic Republic. So, so you talk about like doing this long-term research with people that you don't see eye to eye with. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about like the research process and how you were able to get access mm -hmm. to these IRGC media producers and you know what what they thought you were doing. Yeah, um, you know, access for this research took a very long time. Uh, the only way that I was able to even get my foot in the door was um, that I had been working uh, on issues of chemical warfare before I started this project. So because of that, I had During been, the Iran-Iraq war, you mean? Yeah, sorry. So I've been working with um, on issues of uh, chemical the chemical weapons that were used during the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. Uh, Iran, to this day, has the largest number of chemical warfare survivors in the world. And so it's a, it's a case in which there's a lot to be studied and done. So I was doing oral history projects with survivors. Um, and many of those survivors are obviously veterans of the war. Um, so in that, in that process, I was doing that over about a four-year period. In that process, once I began to sort of hone in on this research project that I wanted to do academically on the media producers in the IRGC, I um, mentioned it to some of these veterans, and especially one of them who had uh, been a veteran of the war and had turned into a physician afterwards, he was able to vouch for me to some of his friends. And it was only through that system of personal vouching of trust mm -hmm. where they basically told their friends that, look, we know that politically she's not eye to eye with us, but we, um, she has shown us over the years that she um, can be empathetic to us as human beings. And, and then once that happened, once those introductions were made, then it took another two years of constantly showing up until those media producers were able to trust me and then sort of let me in. I knew during the whole time that, that they could shut the doors on mm -hmm. me on this project too. So it was one of those things where it's not like it was a, you know, I had this master research plan and, and everything was going fine. I knew that at any point it could sort of fall apart. Um, but uh, it, it really was a, a lot of, of building of personal relationships and more than anything, I also began to realize that in systems like Iran's, um, and I would imagine a lot of other systems as well, when you show people that you that you want to listen to their story and really listen to their story, um, people 
will eventually talk, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and also they have a lot that they want to get off their chest about the the system that they live in on a day to day basis. So. And their grievances are not the same as those that we most often hear. Exactly. Exactly. So. One of the things which which I've, I found quite interesting, because to me this is relatively new, was you pointed out that in the, the youth of the besiege, they tend they seem to be far more rigid and ideological than the earlier generations, which kind of cuts against what people might expect. Yeah. I mean, how did you experience that? What, and what do you think explains that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I thought most of my time would be spent um, listening to debates and discussions about how they were going to make media to try to target the youth that were protesting against them from the 2009 movement onwards. And and while there was a lot of that, what surprised me the most is that most of the energy uh, was spent actually in debates and infighting amongst the older generation of the IRGC and Basij and their younger folks. Um, that was something I didn't expect to see as much of. And once I, once I started digging more into it and was sort of s- surrounded by it a lot more, um, a few things became obvious to me. One is that um, when the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei sort of realized in the mid-1990s that he was losing support within the IRGC to reformist members, um, uh, and especially to Khatami, who was the, pre- the reformist president as elected in 1997. Um, and, on, and even after that, I mean, even in the 2009 Green Movement, many members of the IRGC voted for the reformist candidate. Um, so what he had decided to do was to uh, completely redo the curriculum of the Basij paramilitary organization to sort of create a young cadre of folks that would be loyal to him. Now, when I was doing this research, that's what I was seeing a lot of. Uh, What's interesting, though, is that I've been following and have kept in touch with a lot of these folks since this research in the book has come out. And given the recent protests that have been happening in Iran, what I'm seeing is that a lot of those younger folks, um, you know, what they believe in and the way that they've sort of been trained is that they, and this goes back to sort of class differences that have now begun to emerge within all of these groups. So many of the folks in the IRGC and the paramilitary groups sort of tended to come from the lower economic, socioeconomic background Mm -hmm. in Iran. Throughout the past 35 to 40 years, many of those of that first generation have now moved into comfortably middle class, if not upper middle class, and those who've gone into the business sector are definitely very rich. Um, the ones that are being recruited into the paramilitary forces now, though, uh, do still come from the lower economic strata. So they see the first generation of IRGC folks as having lost touch with the revolution, as having become corrupt and wanting to make themselves like the secular elite. And so they believe that they are the ones who actually are sort of keeping the light of the revolution alive. And this is the tension that I explore a lot in the book. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The other, the other thing that you, you come back to multiple times is this idea that Iranians look at the possibility of change and they don't want to become Syria. Yeah. There's this fear of chaos, the fear of violence and all of that. Was that something that you saw as being actively promoted in the media that the IRGC was producing? Yes. Or did it just kind of naturally come from people following the news? No, it was very, it was very actively, that sort of line was very actively produced. And especially 
especially uh, in the in the lionization of General Soleimani um, from around 2013 onwards. That was sort of um, the rationale given to why he was uh, operating in the way that he was in the region. Uh, and the, the common refrain in Iran was that if the IRGC were not in Damascus, then ISIS would be in Tehran. Um, and so this was something that uh, they promoted quite a bit. And I think one of the reasons that I don't think, I mean, I, from having heard these conversations, one of the reasons that they were doing this was because after 2009, they really faced a crisis of legitimacy. Um, and they knew that the general population was extremely mad at them for the way in which they repressed that movement. Um, so when the Syrian civil war sort of turned very bloody, that became an opportunity for these forces to say, look, we were looking out for the country. Uh, and if we hadn't done that, then there was the possibility that we would turn into Syria. Uh, and now we have to make sure we don't do that. Now, what's fascinating, though, is that very recently after, so in November of 2019, there were these huge nationwide protests in Iran over the increase in fuel prices and the state um, crackdown extremely, like they, they repressed it very heavily and in a very bloody manner. What's fascinating is that some of the younger uh, media folks that I uh, trace in this book, um, they have been very public now um, in saying uh, in, in public events in Iran that we've always been told, let's not make Iran into Syria. And you're right, let's not make Iran into Syria. However, that message was always directed at the population. Um, and now we would like to direct that message to the leaders of the country, don't turn Iran into Syria. And so this is really fascinating hmm. because it's beginning to sort of shift the onus onto the decision makers in power rather than always using it as a scare tactic against uh, protesters. No, that's really interesting. So can you say anything else about this kind of the, the cult of Soleimani and kind of the way he was promoted as the, as the, the symbol of all of this? And I know you've written several things about, you know, the aftermath of, of his death and what and, and how the IRGC will, will respond. So can walk us through that a little bit in terms of this, you know, this uh, media production around him. Yeah. So when um, in in when I was doing this research, part of the discussions that they were having a lot amongst themselves were, um, you know, no one watches our films anymore. Um no one cares about the martyrdom thing, films that we've made about the 1980 Iran-Iraq war. Um, we need new heroes. And they kept sort of talking about how they needed new heroes uh, and heroes that young people could relate to. And they knew because the heroes that they had sort of uh, uh, promoted in the first two decades of their media production were mostly men who were extremely pious, and who had willingly gone to fight and martyr themselves in this war. Um, and they knew that, that that message was no longer sticking in the younger generation. So they, sh they decided that they needed a, a live hero, someone who was, who was living and, and not dead. And this was a big shift in their media production. Usually they really focused on, on folks mm -hmm. who, had, who had been killed in battle. Um, and so they, they settled in on Ghassan Soleimani for a few reasons. One is that he was functioning outside of the country, and so he was not tied into a lot of the critiques that uh, the population has in Iran against the IRGC for their internal dynamics. Two, he lived um, a seemingly very sort of simple life, um, and we and you could see that from a lot of the images that came out after his death, when uh, dignitary, you know, state dignitaries in Iran were visiting his family's home. It was a very simple home, um, and and that's key because so much of the critique against the IRGC has been about its corruption, uh, uh, economic corruption. Um, 
And so uh, this was, and then third, it was about sort of the Iranian nation and keeping the Iranian nation safe from these external enemies, which at that point were mm -hmm. ISIS mainly. Um, so when they focused in on Soleimani, uh, they, they created very, very vast media campaigns around him. And now these media campaigns are really interesting because they, they uh, created media campaigns for an internal audience in Persian and then completely separate media campaigns with different messages for an external Arab audience. So the internal Iranian messages were all about uh, Qasem Soleimani as this national hero. Many of the music videos made about him, documentary films made about him, um, were really sort of highlighting him as and, and using the languages of, of old Persian myths hmm. um, and not really focusing on anything religious and sort of pushing the religious imagery to the background. The, the, the things that were being made about him and for Arab audiences, however, were sort of completely the reverse. Obviously, Iranian nationalism doesn't matter outside, um, and, and much of what was being drawn upon were Shia iconography and, and sort of religious symbolism there. Um, so this is part of the reason why I think for those who, who you know, weren't paying close attention to Soleimani, sort of and knew about Soleimani's actions in Syria and sort of being at the helm of causing a lot of bloodletting in Syria, were surprised about how he was such a national hero in Iran. But it's really important to remember that what was focused on in Iran was how he was really keeping, you know, I mean, from Iran, when you're looking at the region from inside Iran, you're seeing a region completely in chaos and the country that you're living in being one of the only ones that is relatively stable and completely safe to be to be in and walk around mm -hmm. and you don't have to worry about bombs going off. And this was something that throughout from 2013 onwards was consistently messaged as thanks to Soleimani that we can live like this in this region that is so that is on fire. Well, that's really interesting. And he was an active uh, uh, participant in this myth making. Uh, yes, he was an active participant <laughs> in myth making. Um, I want to change gears just a little bit. Uh, kind of one last a topic mm -hmm. that really interested me in the book, and that's the dynamic between the diaspora media mm -hmm. and the national media. And it's very interesting, uh, kind of how that seemed to work with the the producers inside the country, you know, following all of the external media, but at the same time trying to deflect it and uh, compete with it. And this is. Let's talk a little bit about that yeah. in terms of the, ex the exile media and, and the local. Yeah, well, I think it's really important for folks to know how incredibly robust sort of the media sphere writ large on Iran is. So, you know, I've been talking about that produced by the state, but there is a very, very large uh, Iranian diaspora that has been active in media production, especially news production on and about Iran since basically the very beginnings of the post-revolutionary period. Um, and so what, what's really important to remember is that because the Iranian revolution was a popular revolution from below, you had a lot of people who were activists for a very long period of time who also knew how to organize. And, and, um, and so when they, when they end up in exile and diaspora the beginnings of the 1980s and, and sort of later, it's very quickly they begin to produce different kinds of media. At the beginnings, it was radio. Mm -hmm. uh, you definitely have newspapers coming out. You have publishing houses begin to be developed. And then eventually, as technology gets better in the 1990s, you begin to have satellite uh, television stations. Um, in the, in the mid-1990s, these aren't very sort of fancy ones. A lot of them are being done out of garages in, in L.A. Um, but as time goes on, more and more money gets to get poured into this, and especially 
especially from different states around the world mm -hmm. who sort of want a change in Iran in one way or the other and see media as one of the key avenues to make this happen. So now in today's world, you have uh, over 30 24-hour Persian language um, media, uh, sorry, t t satellite television stations that are broadcast into Iran on a daily basis. It's not all of which are on news, but, mm -hmm. but now many of them are news and they have extremely high production qualities. Um, much of this media, of course, was illegal uh, and tends to, con you know, still uh, formally be illegal in Iran, but most, many people have satellite television stations yeah. and, and sort of tune into this stuff. Now, for the state, for the Iranian state producers, um, this was something that even though they constantly rail against it and talk about it as this uh, soft war that the West is waging against them, they were also obviously constantly watching it. Mm -hmm. And now you see programs on state television in Iran that sort of mirror these uh, programs that are happening in diaspora. They're constantly responding to one another. I mean, the diaspora is also paying attention to what's mm -hmm. happening in, in state television in Iran. Um, and so this is one of those instances in which, you know, I, I, this is why I think studying media is so incredibly powerful is because it sort of crosses all of these different boundaries, um, whether it's national or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I think what's important here to note is that th the way in which media is seen from Iran is that they are really engaged in a media war, um, writ large with the diaspora, with the international community. Um, and we see that more and more now as sort of uh, fake news, sort of, you know, we're, we're paying attention to it more in the US and bots and trolls and all of that sort of stuff. So this is something that um, they've been dealing with for a long time. Yeah, it all sounds very familiar from the, the Arab media mm -hmm. world that I, I <laughs> that I live in. Yeah. Um, it, it's really interesting. Well, I, I wanted to thank you. Uh, we've been talking to Nargis Bojagli uh, about her book, Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.